Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's get into Mark chapter 2 here. We're going to read just four or five verses, and then we're going to let the gospel ring out through baptism. Uh, I'm the type of person that likes to uh, know how things work. I'm still confused by a few things, like for the longest time I've been confused by jet propulsion. I mean, I, I, it, somebody can explain it to me, but at the end of the day, I remember the first time I got on a plane as a little kid and I flew from San Diego, California to San Francisco to go to the John Elway football camp where I had the opportunity to uh, throw the worst pass I've ever thrown right in front of John Elway, which was a glorious moment in my life. Uh, But I can remember being fascinated by the fact that there was an engine powerful enough to lift up a big, huge chunk of metal and send it propelling through the air safely and then land onto the ground. Another thing that I'm just confused and amazed by and would love to really know how it works is cellular technology. No, I mean, come on. <laughs> we just accept this like, oh, well, gosh. And, and when we drop a call, we're just mad. But I mean, think about it for a second. You're speaking into a little plastic box, and your words are going into the air somewhere, and there's something up there, a satellite or some other thing, which is grabbing those words and then putting it into another little plastic metal box thousands of miles away instantly. How does that work? And if you really know, okay, I'll be awaiting your email or whatever. I'll read the first couple sentences and then I'll send it to my delete. But I mean, think about that. That is fascinating to think about how that works. And when we work our way through the Bible, like which is our custom here, we just work through books of the Bible, and we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark right now, one of the things I like to do is to think about truths and principles and good doctrine and everything that flows from it that we can learn from working our way through the Bible. And that's why we do that so we don't skip over important stuff. And I, and I love to go slow and to gather sets of important truths to live by because Jesus says that the truth will set you free. So we need to know truth and we need to know how the Bible fits together and we need to know what the gospel is. But, but there are times, friends, when we just need to sit and look and stare at the beauty that is Christ and his gospel, right? I mean, when, when you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you really don't want to hear a, a sort of ge- geography or what, what's even the word? I don't know, the, the environmental explanation of how the Grand Canyon formed. I mean, okay, that might be good to do on some occasion, but when you're standing on the edge, when you're standing over that little thing that they built a, a few years ago where you could actually walk out over, and you're, you're looking down over this beautiful piece of creation, you really don't want a scientific explanation of how it formed. You just want to gaze into the beauty of our Creator. When you're standing at the shore of the Pacific Ocean in San Diego, and the water's freezing cold, by the way, in in San Diego all the time, by the way. So let's just go over to Panama City. When you're standing in the Gulf of Mexico where the the water is warm and swimmable, 
and, and you're looking at the waves beating against the sand and the beautiful coast, you, you're really not interested so much in, in sort of, you know, all of the physics of the moon cycle and the waves. You're just, you're just gazing at something that you know is irresistibly beautiful. And this morning, I want us to just do that as we look at just a few short verses, as we gaze into the irresistible beauty of the nature and character and person of Jesus as he interacts with sinners like us. So let me pray, and we're just going to work our way through very briefly Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and then revel in the beauty of the gospel, and baptism. Let me pray. Father, oh gosh, I I pray today that you would uh, blow away the dust and the cobwebs from from the corners of our hearts and our eyes and that you would wash the mud from the lens of our spiritual eyes so that we can see Jesus today. For the people in this room who are already followers of Christ, Let the gospel be refreshed. Let the beauty of the wonder of Jesus and how he interacts with sinners like us, let let it reset itself in our hearts so that we would praise you more. And for people that are in this room who feel a thousand miles away from Jesus and they just happen to find themselves here today, Lord, would you make the gospel and the good news and the person of your Son so beautiful so irresistibly attractive that they have no other recourse other than to turn and love him. And would you do this for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of those who do not yet know you. Lord, would you do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's read Mark chapter 2. And remember, just catching you up, Mark gives this quick account of Jesus' life and ministry, and he sets off in the first chapter, and things happen very quickly. In fact, the word immediately shows up over 40 times in the Gospel of Mark, and so Mark is very concerned with presenting sort of the, the, the bare facts of Jesus' life and ministry and power and authority over evil and sin and sickness and even our own very lives as he calls these, these early disciples to follow him. And we just ended with Jesus healing this paralytic as four friends lowered him through the ceiling. And now we see Jesus calling another one of his disciples and and engaging in what is nothing short of a scandalous, scandalous dinner party. So let's read in Mark chapter 2 verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. You imagine that Jesus himself teaching you the Bible? I mean, come on, that 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 would gosh, that would be so rich. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. So listen, we gotta do a little background here before we understand just how huge this moment is. Is there's this there's this man named Levi who later in the other gospels is identified very likely as Matthew, the other disciple who writes the first gospel, Matthew, that, we, that is first in our order of our Bible. And so there's this, there's this man, Levi, who is a tax collector. He's sitting in a booth, and he is collecting taxes for those traveling from one city to another. He's maybe also collecting taxes on 
some of their consumer goods like fish. He might have even been taxing some of the fishing uh, of the previous disciples that we saw in chapter 1. And so we can think, oh, well, okay, so he's kind of like a, maybe a first century IRS agent. And I don't know if there are any IRS agents in here, uh, but, but it's, it's much, much more than that. And by the way, if you are an IRS agent, we love you, and you're just doing your job, and we get that, and we understand that. But there's something much deeper here going on, and much more significant with Jesus calling this man Levi. You see, Levi was a Jewish man who is working for the Roman Empire, who has the Jewish nation under its thumb. They are the captors. They are the, they are the empire that is keeping the Jewish nation under its thumb by their military might, which is financed through their oppressive taxes. And so Levi, in a sense, is a turncoat. He is selling out. He's, he's turning on his people by being a tax collector. And Jesus is calling a man like Matthew, a man like Levi, to be one of his followers. A tax collector in first century Jewish life would be more than just somebody who was looked down upon as maybe not the most um, edifying profession. A tax collector uh, was, was uh, unable to be a witness in court. They were unable to be a judge. A tax collector, uh, their family was disgraced. And uh, a tax collector, if they touched something in your house, it would be considered unclean. And in fact, in Jewish literature of the time, we read that tax collectors, it was okay to lie to a tax collector, presumably about your income, so you didn't have to pay as much uh, unreasonable tax to this Jewish tax collector who would then take some of your tax, keep some of it for himself, and give the rest to this Roman um, empire, which is keeping you under the thumb of their rule, their oppressive rule. And it was okay. So, so sort of Jewish culture at this time is saying, we, we can break that, that commandment that says don't bear false witness, because in this case, the tax collectors are such turncoats, such low life, that it's okay to lie to them because what they are doing is so heinous that we can actually lie to them. And, and this is the type of person that Jesus is calling to be one of his disciples. Friends, the application and the implications of this almost are so obvious. I mean, do we even need to, do we even need to go over them? That means that nobody, like nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus. Nobody is in this room is beyond the reach of Jesus. Nobody that is related to anybody in this room is beyond the reach of Jesus. But it gets even more like scandalous than that. Jesus doesn't just call a tax collector. We also read a couple chapters later in Mark chapter 3 that he calls these political zealots. He calls Simon the Zealot to be one of his followers. And so he's getting people from opposite ends of the spectrum politically and socially. It would be kind of like, I mean, I was thinking, trying to think of, a, of, a, uh, of an analogy. I, most of you, like me, probably that are 40 years old or so, grew up in the 70s fearing Soviet Union, you know, I mean, any moment, remember that movie with Patrick Swayze, Red Dawn? I mean, any day, I was just waiting for people in red coats to just like invade the coast. And Sorry, Paul, that's just a fear I had about people from your part of the world back at the time. <laughs> We've got a guy here from the former Soviet Union, not Russia, Ukraine, but anyway, I was scared of 
Russian occupation, as crazy as that may have been back in the late 70s. And it would be like if they actually came and then they conquered the United States and set up uh, a Russian form of government and then began to tax us. And then my friend went to, or I went to, be a tax collector for the Soviet Union to keep America underneath its thumb. How would you feel about me? It's, it's like a young... Uh, it's like a young terrorist sympathizer who our government has taps on, who we find is somehow channeling money to terrorist groups. And Jesus calls somebody like that. And then in a couple chapters, he calls the young guy who is the airborne ranger, zealous American patriot, and he brings these two people and he puts them together in the same little band of 12. Not, not in a room of five or six or so hundred people where you can sit over on that end of the congregation and, and the other guy can sit over on that end of the congregation. He takes the turncoat and the political nationalist and he puts them together in the same Twelve, friends, that is scandalous, that is otherworldly. You can only do that if you are God and you have control of people's hearts and you are, you are powerful, man. And that's the type of motley crew that Jesus is assembling, friends, that's far, far more striking than just calling somebody who is unlikely. He's calling together, he's calling people who it's impossible for them to be candidates to grace. And he's calling people together who cannot get along. Look at that picture of Jesus in his grace. Some people in this room may feel like, okay, Brad, I get that. But you know, it's amazing how these great truths can just sort of hit our hearts. And we can actually sit in a room and hear truths like this or read it in the Bible and we still kind of have this category of in our heart. Yeah, but I'm the exception. You see, this seems so distant. This seems so far, but you don't know what I've done. I was helped this week by the words of this Puritan preacher from the 1600s. His name is Thomas Brooks. And this is what he wrote regarding the reach and the power of grace to call even the most unlikely, to pardon even the most fervent of rebels, whether it's a tax collector or whether it's a person in this room who thinks that they're beyond Jesus' reach. This is what he says. This is so good. Thomas Brooks says, The greatness of a man's sins does not set off the riches of free grace. Sins are debts. And God can as easily blot a debt of many thousands as he can a lesser one. Therefore, let not the greatest rebel despair, but believe, and he shall find that where sin hath abounded, there grace shall abound much more. Oh, that's good. That is so encouraging. Jesus calls wicked turncoat tax collectors and sinners to follow him. Let's keep reading in verse 15. It gets even more scandalous because now this tax collector doesn't just sort of go off and be quiet about it. He is so excited about his trust in Jesus 
that he decides to throw a party. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house. So I think that's what that's saying. There's, and as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, probably not Jesus' house, but probably Levi's house, because in Luke chapter 5, I think it is, the other account of this scene, it's identified as Levi's house. So as Jesus is reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so evidently what's happened is Levi is overcome with grace, and instead of just kind of being quiet about it, he goes and he invites all of his other tax collector friends and sinners, because who do sinners hang out with? Other sinners and other tax collectors. And he invites them over to his house and decides to throw a party. And Jesus comes, and Jesus is like right there in the middle, reclining at the table, laying down with his feet kind of out that way, with his shoulder down. You know, I'm just picturing some sort of, I know it's medieval, fit, some big turkey leg. And Jesus seems so like comfortable right in the middle of all these sinners. I mean, get this picture. Again, Have you ever been in a situation which is sort of socially uncomfortable, and as a Christian, you sort of maybe feel like, oh, you know, I'm kind of here because I'm supporting this guy, but I really don't want to be here, you know, and sort of we stiffen up, and maybe there's a couple people are throwing some, you know, bad words, you know, over, and there's maybe some other sort of activity going on, and you're sort of there, but you're, you're really kind of wanting to posture yourself like, I'm here kind of supporting him, but I'm, but I'm not really here, you know, kind of that goofy little, you know, just a very uncomfortable way, kind of like a political candidate with a little hard hat on and a little factory, you know, just kind of, uh, you know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? But Jesus isn't, like, he's, he's not like that with us. He's not like that with these people. But yet he's not compromising his holiness at all. Friends, who can do that but God alone? How can you be simultaneously purer than pure and holier than holy, but comfortable with the dregs of society? To where you're not sort of standing stiff like somebody running for office in the corner making an appearance, but you're laying at the table dipping your bread in the wine, having a party with tax collectors and sinners. Friends, that picture is otherworldly. And I I want us today to just stare at the grace and the beauty, the truth and the holiness and the compassion and mercy of Jesus as he is reclining at a table at a party for turncoats and sinners, not compromising his holiness or his purity in any way, but yet right in the middle of the most unlikely of scenes. Oh, that is so beautiful. It tells me some things about Jesus. It tells me that he doesn't need us to modify our behavior before he comes to us. He doesn't need the, uh, the, he doesn't need the host to sign a little waiver saying, can you ensure that there's no music with bad lyrics and to make sure that nobody gets tipsy and I can't make sure, let, let's, just, let's come up with some conditions about my appearance here. It, 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 is there going to be a rated R movie playing in the background? No, no, he just shows up in the middle of people who are lost. And he is simultaneously holy and gracious all at the same time. And here's what happens. 
the sinners don't stay in their sin. They become so attracted to the beauty and the worth and the goodness and the satisfying nature of Jesus and his personhood that they're drawn to him and they want to follow him, friends. So I don't, I don't have any doctrinal points for you right now. I don't have any little things I can say that might, we might pull out of some theological point. I just want you to see Jesus who is holy and the only one who can save and dives into the middle of the cesspool of human brokenness and reclines at table with sinners. Do you see that? Do you see how amazingly attractive that is? Like, like I want to follow that type of God. And it goes on and he says in verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating. This is weird. Like, what, were, they, were they hiding in the bushes? <laughs> and when the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, I mean, were they... Were they asking the question? You know, sometimes you talk, but you really want somebody else to hear, you know? Or was it like the scene before when they were just saying it in their hearts and Jesus, he just knew what they were thinking and said, oh, I got an answer for that question you didn't even say out loud? Either way, but then here's, so why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 17, it says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is being a little ironic, maybe even a little sarcastic, isn't he? I mean, friends, the point is, is that Jesus is not saying to those scribes of the Pharisees, you're righteous. He's saying, we're all unrighteousness. We're all unrighteous. We all need Jesus as our Savior. And I came for the people who realize it. Jesus is, is saying that all of us need a physician. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's words. Uh, a great British uh, writer in the middle part of the century, he said that in the Western world, I think this is very true, it was true in the 1940s for Great Britain, it's true in America today, regarding preaching the good news of Jesus, he says in the Western world you need to preach the disease before you can preach the cure. Many people in our world today don't even think they need a Savior. They don't even think they're sick. And friends, we realize that whether we were born into a Christian family or whether we are as far away from the grace of God as we can imagine, maybe much like this tax collector, that we all need, we're all sick. And that we all need Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to see four people be baptized and proclaim the gospel through their baptism and their testimonies that you'll hear read. If you are a Christian, I want you to be like you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or the shore of the ocean, and I want you to revel in the beauty of the scene of these four that are proclaiming what Christ has done in them. If you are not a Christian yet, and maybe you've just realized that, maybe the Holy Spirit has shown you that, even here in these past few minutes, 
I want you to realize that the voice in the back of your head that maybe has been there for a while saying that you've got to do something to make yourself right with Jesus or you've got to get out of where you are right now to be justified. I want you to realize that that is a religious lie. And I want you to realize that you are not beyond the arm of Jesus. And the message of the gospel is not do this and then you will be accepted. It is look to Jesus because he is the only one who can offer acceptance through his work on the cross. And therefore, because of that, you can now live the life that he's calling you to live. And here's the other scandalous part of the gospel is, is you may think, okay, Brad, no, all I have to do is look to Jesus. Okay, I have to have faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. He bore God's wrath for the sin of his people. I get that. I've heard that explained enough times, and he rose again in victory over sin. But I don't even know if I have like, the faith to believe that. I, I can't turn away from my, my sin. I, I can't do these things. I feel like I've got to turn away from this. And then, no, no I, I don't know if I can believe that. I don't even know if I completely believe that. Friends, friends, he's not asking you to conjure up some duty within you. He gives you the very thing that he requires. So even with that little slender wire of faith, Look to Jesus. The salvation is in him, not in your faith. Do you see that? He's God, not how much faith you have. And so just look to Jesus right now and don't think about all these little things you've got to put together and saying all these little correct prayers. I want you to stand at the beach of the ocean of the character and nature and beauty and holiness and mercy and grace of Jesus and I want you to look at the sea and I want you to be amazed and I want you to fall in love with the ocean of the character of Jesus' grace. And, and when you start to love that, when you start to see it, and love, you know what love is? You know what love for Jesus is? That is spiritual fruit. And spiritual fruit can only grow when there is the root of saving grace and faith in your life. So when you, start to, when you start to long for Jesus, when you start to love him, when you start to want him, friends, right there, that's an indication that Jesus has got your heart, man. So just let yourself go into loving Jesus. Let yourself go, like look, to him and love him and give your heart to him and friend if you're a Christian if your heart is dry be refreshed and love and bear fruit and fall in love with the holy God who descends in the middle of a scandalous dinner party and shows and saves do that right now friend if you're not a Christian don't don't worry about some correct prayer look to Jesus and love him Fall in love with Jesus. And when he saves a person, he gives him that very love that he requires. Oh, how can we revel in the gospel like this? Oh, wait, we could. But you know me, I'll take the opportunity to read my favorite Charles Spurgeon quote of all time. I know every time I go a couple weeks without reading Spurgeon, you guys... The natives get restless. You send emails back and forth to each other. What's happened with Brad? Does he still like Spurgeon? Yes. Listen to this. This is what Spurgeon says in one of his sermons in this little book called All of Grace. He says, come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. 
Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord Jesus to justify another ungodly one. Why, would, why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text, and the text he's referring to is Romans 4, 5. And I cannot put it more strongly than this. The Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Look to Jesus. He is the friend of sinners. Let that amaze your heart with love. And if you find yourself outside of him this morning, look to him. He is your friend if you will trust and fall in love with him even now. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you are being water baptized, you can go ahead and get set up. And if you're reading the testimony, you can kind of get set up over here to be prepared to read. Let me pray. And then we will... We will celebrate the gospel together in the lives of some of our friends. Father, thank you for what Jesus has done. Thank you that he saved a, a sinner like me and many in this room. Lord, we have all committed treason. We've all collected taxes, maybe not for a foreign empire or the Romans or the Soviet Union or some terrorist network, but we've all collected taxes to pay off our own debts. To, we've, all, we've all committed rebellion against the true kingdom. and We all deserve your punishment and your condemnation. But you have been so kind to us in Jesus and on the cross, he bore the penalty for our treason and our rebellion. And he satisfied it completely. And he rose again in victory over the consequences of our sin, death. So, Lord, this morning, would we revel in that? Would we, would we be the type of church and the type of Christians who never are able to get over the gospel. That we, we, we just can't get past that because there's really nothing else to go into that we're just amazed afresh and we see how it touches every area of life and it gives us great hope for people in our lives that are not yet believers in Jesus because we know that Jesus is a friend of sinners and we know that nothing is beyond his reach and we know that he saves to the uttermost. God, would you cause us to just stand at the shore of your grace and fall in love with you again. And Lord, for the friend who's in this room who feels like maybe they came in outside of that or like they had to do something to be with you, Lord, would you, would you just give them love so that they can love Jesus and be drawn in so that they can be like Levi and follow him. Lord, would you do these things? And as we watch these friends be, be baptized, Lord, would we celebrate the gospel together?
and what you have done in their lives and many more in this faith family. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.